Good evening and welcome. I'm Judy Cooper, the Coordinator of Public Programs here at the Pratt, and we're delighted to see all of you here this evening um, for this very special um, event with Dr. Sandra Steingraber. Uh, this evening's program is part of the Sustainable Speaker Series, which the Pratt is very pleased to present with um, the Baltimore Greenworks and Baltimore Medical System. We, um, some, um, some of you I know have been here for our lectures in the past, and they're sort of, uh, we do three or four a year, and they're on an irregular kind of basis. So um, we hope that you'll stay tuned to both the Pratt website and the Baltimore Greenworks website, and, and um, we'll be having some more in the fall. We're also grateful for the support of the Ceres Foundation, Lawrence Incorporated, and the Living Classrooms Foundation. Here to introduce our special guest speaker is Dr. Robert Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence is Professor of Health Policy and Management and Professor of Environmental Health Sciences at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. In 1996, he became the founding director of Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, an organization working to research the complex interrelationships among diet, food production, environment, and human health. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lawrence. Thank you very much, uh, Judy. I prefer to be called Bob, uh, so uh, it is a real pleasure for me to be here tonight to uh, uh, introduce uh, Sandra Steinbraber. I just want to uh, put all of us in context uh, with what we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Steingraber. Um, we're all comfortable with the idea of the watershed. We know we live in the Chesapeake uh, watershed. We know that we're downstream from a lot of uh, toxins and pollutants. We're increasingly aware of the concept of the airshed, that we're downwind of a lot of uh, coal burning uh, electric power plants in the Midwest that uh, send all of their CO2 and their mercury and uh, their uh, hydrogen sulfides and uh, so forth downwind. Uh, what may not be as familiar to all of us is the concept of a food shed. And we are downstream of our food shed as well, which is increasingly being industrialized and the means of production require large chemical inputs for fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. So things like atrazine, which functions as an endocrine disruptor and uh, has been identified as the principal cause of the hermaphrodite uh, smallmouth bass in the Potomac River. And since our congressmen drink from the Potomac River, there was a lot of hope in the environmental group that they'd finally get it, but doesn't seem to have happened yet. Um, and then, of course, uh, long-acting uh, persistent organic uh, pollutants like dieldrin, uh, common pesticide, uh, and then other things that we're going to hear more about tonight that really are impacting um, the health and well-being of uh, mothers and infants uh, and all of us uh, because of our exposure through food, uh, air, and water. I wanted to just comment on one uh, particularly alarming thing. Our center supported a few years ago a study of uh, uh, singleton uh, newborns at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, 293 of them, cord blood 
was collected and then examined for some of these toxins. And uh, PBDD, polybrominated dibenzodioxin, uh, which you may not uh, uh, recognize, but it is in virtually everything that you wear, sit on, or use around the household. It's a uh, fire retardant. Uh, it's put on changing tables, and yet we now know that uh, uh, polybrominated uh, dibenzodioxin interferes with the normal thyroid function, uh, interferes with neural development, and so we're putting the fetus at risk during critical periods of uh, fetal development when the thyroid gland begins to actually influence growth and development and when the brain is developing. Uh, so we have a lot to uh, be concerned about, and we're fortunate uh, that we have scientists like uh, Sandra Steingraber to point the way and to describe in language that's compelling and engaging uh, the nature of these problems. So Sandra grew up in uh, Peoria, Illinois, on the banks of the Illinois River. Uh, she is a scientist by training, uh, and I'm going to defer to her to tell you uh, uh, how she uh, became the advocate and the uh, writer that she is today. Uh, she's now uh, authored several important uh, award-winning books, Living Downstream, an Ecologist's Personal Investigation of Cancer and the Environment, uh, was uh, published in 1997, and it was the first uh, uh, book that was really readily available to the lay audience as well as to uh, the scientific audience to document the increasingly important connections between toxic exposures and risk for cancer. Uh, she then uh, had that Living Downstream book adapted for film by the People's Picture uh, Company of Toronto. Um, and that uh, is that available on uh, uh, various... Uh, LivingDownstream.com. Okay, terrific. She uh, Sojourner magazine uh, called uh, Sandra Steingraber uh, Graber, a poet with a knife. Uh, she's received many honors for her work uh, as a science writer, named by Ms. Magazine as Woman of the Year, later received the uh, Jennifer Altman Foundation First Annual Altman Award for the inspiring and poetic use of science to elucidate the causes of cancer. The Sierra Club has called Sandra the new Rachel Carson, and Rachel Carson's own alma mater, Chatham College, uh, awarded uh, Dr. Steingraber its first uh, uh, Rachel Carson Leadership Award. So uh, we're really privileged to have her with us tonight to uh, share her story and to uh, engage all of us in the collective work that's necessary uh, to begin moving upstream uh, to cut off the pollution of our air, water, and food. Uh, Dr. Steingraber. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It's a real honor to be here. Um, and I know whenever speakers are flown across state lines and crowds are assembled and receptions are catered, that lots of work goes on behind the scenes to make that happen. So thanks to all my hosts who uh, brought me here tonight, um, but especially to Rebecca Ruggles, who's been my kind of shepherd ever since I arrived. Thank you. So I grew up uh, in, along the Illinois River uh, in a place that I think of a lot like Baltimore. Um, and uh, I have a, a family history 
my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 15. Uh, and, and then my senior year of high school was uh, diagnosed with metastatic disease. She was in her middle 40s. So I chose to go to the college nearest to home so I could go come back and forth and be uh, with my mom. Um, then in between my sophomore and junior year, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. So my mom and I actually became co-cancer patients at the same time. My aunt went on to die of the same kind of bladder cancer that I had. And then I went on to develop colon lesions. And my cousin, uh, who is exactly my age now, uh, is, has a very serious colon cancer diagnosis, as do several of my uh, uncles. I have an uncle with a rare stromal cancer um, and another cousin who's my age who just died of breast cancer. So there's a lot of cancer that runs in my family. However, the punchline to my family story is that I'm adopted. And so I began to be aware early on as a biologist that uh, this presumption that what runs in families necessarily runs in genes as a kind of hereditary predisposition is a really unexamined assumption that, in fact, families share many other things in common. We often drink from the same drinking water wells. Um, Bob explained to us the concept of air sheds and food sheds. Uh, we may live downwind from the same... Uh, uh, factories, and so forth. And so uh, it became my life's work then to understand this sort of intimate communion, if you will, between the inside of our bodies and the environment in, in which we inhabit. And so uh, as a biologist, uh, at some point um, I was working as a you know, regular biology professor, but I felt compelled enough um, by the fact that um, most people don't hear the, the evidence that we have that it's kind of soundproofed away in the medical literature, um, and it's not uh, brought before the public for public discussion. Moreover, even within the scientific community, the epidemiologists aren't talking to the toxicologists and the wildlife biologists aren't talking to the people who do occupational health. Um, nobody's talking to the folks in the county health department who are on the front lines of environmental health. And so what we really uh, needed um, was somebody who could just kind of pull all the puzzle pieces together. So I left the lab bench and left my uh, kind of tenure-track uh, biology job and kind of went off with the help of um, a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard in 1993 to kind of reinvent myself as a science writer. And so that's what I've been doing. I'm still in and out of a lot of laboratories. They're just not my own. Um, but I have a lot of colleagues who are still uh, at the lab bench who are kind of generating the data. And then I um, see my job, my self-appointed task, is to bring some plain-spoken English um, and hopefully some lyrical language um, to bear on the science and bring it out before the public. So I've now published three books on environmental health. Um, and as you heard, the first one, uh, the first edition of uh, Living Downstream was in 1997, so I've been at this for a while. And as I uh, travel around and get to meet my readers, um, it's become my distinct impression that um, I have another responsibility, which is not only to explain the evidence to them, but to save them from their own sense of despair when they hear the evidence. Um, that, in fact, um, the, uh, most people have uh, some awareness that uh, the health of the environment is related to their own health, but they feel such a help, sense of helplessness about it um, that they would rather turn away and not look at the data um, than look at it because they can't think of anything that they could do sufficient to address the problem. Uh, and it turns out that psychologists actually have a name for that. It's called well-informed futility syndrome. Uh, and it's well described in the literature. And so, uh, so that really was interesting to me. It's an idea that actually... Um, 
started to explain a phenomenon in the 1960s, which is that the more that people watched um, the Vietnam War on television, the more passive they felt about it. Um, and so television viewing was not related to activism. It had an, actually the opposite relationship. That was the first war, of course, that appeared to us uh, on TV. Uh, and so this idea that the, um, you could feel so futile by being well-informed that you were almost paralyzed, a kind of a form of learned helplessness, um, was interesting to uh, the sort of media psychologists of the day. Um, but more recently, that idea has um, been resurrected to explain why people deny the evidence for climate change. And so it seemed to me that this actually has currency for environmental health as well. So one of, um, I decided to deal with that directly in my book, Raising Elijah, uh, and um, take as the starting point that none of us want to feel despair. Um, but on the other hand, we also ha uh, correctly perceive that dutifully carrying our recyclables out to the curb uh, every Wednesday is not going to keep the ice caps frozen. Um, and changing our light bulbs um, is not going to uh, deal with the decline of plankton in the ocean, which provide us half of our, our, uh, the air, the oxygen that we, we breathe. Um, and so how can we acknowledge the direness of our situation um, and yet not uh, fall into this kind of paralyzing despair. How can we take that knowledge and move it to action? So that, so that was a task I actually set out for myself, to find a narrative strategy that would have that effect on my readers and actually talk to my readers ab about that. So um, Raising Elijah is intended, the title is intended to kind of uh, mean a couple of things. My, my nine-year-old son, who's asthmatic, is named Elijah. And so th there's a personal story in the book that invites readers into the kind of messy ecology of my own house. You know, I'm a full-time working mother. I travel 100 days of the year. Nobody cleans my bathrooms, essentially. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so I bring you into the house to, and to see how the kind of ecological cycles work in, in my own kind of domestic uh, sphere. Um, but uh, Elijah himself is named for a hero of mine, Elijah Lovejoy who uh, lived in Illinois and is well-known to every Illinois school child, at least of my generation. Uh, Elijah Lovejoy was an abolitionist who lived in the 1830s at a time when slavery was like real estate was in the 1990s. It was a really good investment um, because uh, uh, changes in agriculture made uh, every slave more and more valuable. So uh, families of wealth were investing their money in, in slaves at the time, and, and, their, and that was accruing value. Um, so Elijah Lovejoy came along and said that it didn't matter that slaves were part of uh, personal property and, uh, a, and represented a good deal of the wealth of our nation, nor did it matter that we were able to be competitive on the world market because we brought commodities to the market that were made without unpaid labor, and if we had to pay people, we wouldn't be profitable. That The fact was that uh, the truth was that slavery was a homicidal abomination, and it simply had to end, and it had to end now. It wasn't, we're going we're to regulate slavery. We're going to have state-of-the-art slavery. It had to stop. And so for that, he was pumped full of five bullets and was assassinated by a pro-slavery mob in the free state of Illinois, and his printing press was dumped in the river. Um, but his best friend was the president of Illinois College, uh, and his best friend's sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who went on moved by Elijah Lovejoy's death to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, his best friend, the president of Illinois College, also befriended uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, and John Brown uh, attended Elijah Lovejoy's funeral, and that's where he stood up and 
uh, swore that he would spend the rest of his life tearing down the institution of slavery. So although he didn't, Elijah Lovejoy had no success in his life as a writer and an abolitionist, um, his death sparked an incredible movement. Um, and so uh, he's the namesake for my son. So the title of the book is intended to both be about me raising my son Elijah, but also about all of us raising up the spirit of Elijah Lovejoy for the great moral crisis of our day, which I believe to be the environmental crisis. Um, and <laughs> so I, I asked my readers to imagine what it would be like for us to become kind of latter-day abolitionists and to say plainly that our economy is now ruinously dependent on fossil fuels uh, in a way that is a homicidal abomination. The, these, uh, the resulting uh, chemical pollutants are killing our children, uh, and they are now, um, their uh, uh, combustion byproducts are threatening to deconstruct the whole ecology of the planet in ways that are making the climate unstable um, and thereby um, uh, killing our children. Uh, and, and we're not talking about future generations anymore. We're actually talking about the kids alive today, the kids across from the dining room table from us every night, the kids who crawl into our beds with us um, in, the, in the middle of the early morning hours. Um, and the World Health Organization, as well as the American Academy of Pediatricians, has claim, uh, plainly said now that climate change is the number one health threat to children today, this generation of kids that we call our own children. Um, and so uh, that was my starting point, not to deny the direness of our situation, but rather to acknowledge it and then say, um, but we can be heroes. We can, as uh, people of other generations have had to do, um, play a heroic role in, in reimagining our economy so it's not dependent on ruinous and, and, and things that uh, are, are harmful um, and, and, and that kill people. Um, and so uh, that's kind of how, it, how the book begins. So um, I argue in this book that the environmental crisis can really be seen as a tree with two trunks. Uh, and one trunk, which is the one that I kind of have operated along for the last 20 years, is what I call the kind of Rachel Carson branch. Um, it's about chemical contamination. Um, and some of those chemicals are uh, agricultural, some of them are industrial, some of them are found in consumer products, um, but they are uh, inherently toxic chemicals that are released into air, food, water, and consumer products um, and find their way into our bodies. Um, and and uh, then at very vanishingly small concentrations can alter signaling mechanisms um, in ways that can um, put a cell on the path to cancer formation, um, uh, raise the risk for asthma, for preterm birth, a learning disability, and all kinds of different outcomes. So if you kind of follow this trunk along, um, you find rising rates of pediatric cancers, rising rates of asthma, uh, Parkinson's disease has a link to pesticide exposure, uh, infertility, attention deficit disorders. We have more information on environmental links there. And, you know, things like male frogs with uh, eggs in their testicles because of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So, um, and to put a finer point on this, one in uh, ten children now have asthma, uh, and that is a disease uh, with a, a $18 billion a year price tag. Um, it's the leading cause of uh, school absenteeism now um, and the number one cause of uh, emergency room visits of children to hospitals. It's, and the incidence of asthma has doubled since 1980 among children, U.S. children. 
Um, one in every six children now has a learning disability or a developmental disorder. Um, uh, and we have growing evidence to suggest, and I'll describe this in more detail, that certain kind of air pollutants, certain kind of pesticides are part of uh, contributing to the story of uh, increasing learning disabilities. Uh, we now spend 25% of our school budgets on special educational services, and the, the more learning disabilities, the more attention deficit disorders we have, um, the, and intellectual disabilities, the, the more um, that's, that's only going to increase at a time when we have these kind of terrible budget crises that are affecting all states. Um, so that's, uh, that's one branch of the trees, what we call toxic trespass. The other branch of this terrible tree of crisis is uh, the branch that's climate instability. It's created by the combustion of fossil fuels and the consequent accumulation of heat-trapping gases. And you follow this trunk along and you find dissolving coral reefs ca caused by acidified oceans, uh, hurricanes, drought, disappearing species. One in every four mammals is now going extinct. Um, and essentially, it's the decreation of all of life. Um, and to put a finer point on this branch of the tree, um, one of the uh, consequences of climate change that uh, scientists are paying particular attention to, which I think is not well appreciated by the general public, but should be, is what's happening to the plankton in the ocean as a result. Um, so you know that, when, um, that water is a very good absorber of heat. 93% of the excess heat generated by heat-trapping gases is actually uh, absorbed by the surface of the oceans. Um, and, and that is the only habitat in which live uh, plankton they have to live on the surface because that's where the light is. So they're drifting around in the world's oceans, uh, and those oceans are heating up. The problem with that is um, when you increase the temperature gradient between the surface of the ocean and, the, and the, um, the deeper layers underneath, which are cooler, you inhibit mixing of, um, of those layers. And that's important because uh, the main fertilizer for plank plankton is actually fish poop. It has a more uh, official name. It's called marine snow. Uh, and uh, it rains down into the abyss of the ocean and feeds all the bottom feeders, except that there's a lot of upwellings that also bring a lot of that up to the surface and feed the plankton. But that's what's being uh, prohibited by excess warming of the surface layer. So uh, in, in the, since the year I was born, which is 1959, our plankton stocks have declined by about 40%. Um, and with plankton providing us half of our oxygen, um, that's a serious trend. Um, the plankton stocks are decreasing by 1% to 2% a year with uh, no end in sight. Um, and then the other outcome of um, climate change in oceans you might be more familiar with, which is that not only is the heat being absorbed by the ocean, but the uh, carbon dioxide itself is absorbed by the water, and in so doing turns into carbonic acid, which lowers the pH of the ocean. We've actually, you can imagine how huge the ocean is, and we've actually lowered it by measurable amounts already. Um, the problem with this is that we're on the, on the uh, path uh, for calcium carbonate to go into solution because at some point um, calcium carbonate uh, dissolves in acid. Um, and, uh, and, of course, everything with a shell is made of calcium carbonate. So that not only includes things like lobsters and clams and oysters and things like that, barnacles, um, but essentially most of the zooplankton, the little animal plankton floating around out there with their little phytoplankton friends, um, those represent the larval forms of stuff with shells. So when you uh, uh, dissolve the adults with shells, then there won't be any zooplankton larvae out in the oceans, which is the basis of the food chain for all the oceans. Um, so it, it was meaningful to me that next to my poster outside in the library here is a poster of Mark Kurlansky, uh, who is another uh, is a historian, actually, 
Um, he and I actually share the same literary agent. I guess he gave a, a, a talk here last month. Um, and he's just written a new book about the disappearing fish in the ocean. Uh, and that story is related to the disappearing plankton, which is related to the carbonic acid, which is related to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is related to how we turn on the lights. Um, so the fish at sea and how we turn on our lights, they're connected. Um, so essentially then, um, these two trees of crisis, climate in, growing climate instability and toxic trespass, share a common root, and that is fossil fuels. Because all the chemicals that I pretty much worry about are petrochemicals. They come to us when we take coal, natural gas, or petroleum uh, into uh, a refinery and turn it into pesticides, uh, shower curtains, uh, interiors of cars, uh, anhydrous ammonia fertilizer, which fills up the Chesapeake Bay, uh, and so forth. Um, and so, uh, and when we burn fossil fuels, we also release a lot of heavy metals, which are also uh, chemical toxicants, right? Um, or we can, uh, instead of taking natural gas in into a refinery and turning it into shower curtains, we can burn natural gas um, to heat up our tea kettles. Um, and in, in doing so, then we release heat-trapping gases. Um, so whether it's part of our materials economy and we make stuff out of petrochemicals or whether we burn the petroleum um, as fuel, uh, we're creating two halves of this uh, 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 environmental crisis. So, uh, so it, in some ways, it's a simple crisis, uh, even though it seems enormous. And I think part of the uh, one way of combating the feeling of overwhelming helplessness in the face of it is to realize it's actually one very simple crisis, however big it is, which means that we just need to move away from fossil fuels. And I think that's good news because we're, we're running out of them anyway, right? It's not like God's going to put any more of them in the ground. So at some point, um, uh, we're going to have to do something different. Um, and hopefully that point will come before uh, everybody's too brain-addled with uh, toxic trespass to be able to solve the problem, or before everything with a shell goes into solution, right? And so um, we have this big, basically, engineering problem and a big challenge of uh, design. It's a design problem. How do we redesign our materials economy, redesign our food system, redesign our transportation and our energy system um, to move us away from fossil fuels? That's basically the question of our age. And so I think as kind of... Uh, fossil fuel abolitionists, we can then begin to imagine the world without fossil fuels and bring those new ideas uh, into uh, all the spheres that we occupy, into our churches, into our hospitals, uh, our synagogues, into our uh, school systems, and begin to normalize a non-fossil fuel way of doing things and denormalize uh, uh, as I said on the radio today, getting uh, oil from Saudi Arabia, putting it into a lawnmower to cut our grass with, you know, um, or drawing from the energy grid to, to dry our clothes. I mean, th those things, we just need fresh, new, innovative ideas for how to solve certain problems. And I think there's a lot of good news here because in actual fact, farmers have already shown us that we can feed the world uh, using organic agriculture um, and have high yields and high profits and enough calories for everybody in the world, including if we go up to 9 million people, without needing to rely on, uh, 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 without agriculture riding a tandem bicycle with the petroleum industry and the natural gas industry. Um, so there's uh, uh, new and good data to show that organic agriculture now is not the same as it was in the 1950s or 60s when it really did lag behind in terms of uh, productivity and yield 
um, the conventional ways of doing things. Organic agriculture itself has evolved, thanks to a lot of us who have been uh, supporting organic farmers uh, and insisting that they have a, a share of their research and development dollars. Um, organic agriculture now has uh, shown us that we can feed ourselves and uh, not uh, destroy the soil and destroy the conditions for uh, for future generations also growing growing their food. So taking a lesson from the good news in agriculture, I think we can begin to redesign all of our other uh, all of our other systems. This isn't to say this is an easy task, um, but after all, we're heroes, right? So that's what heroes do. They, they do difficult things. All right. So I want to do a little science with you now, and then I'll come back to this human, sort of human rights approach uh, at the end um, and talk to you about, um, uh, well, I think I want to talk about four different possible outcomes for children that uh, I think are particularly uh, salient and, and also just expensive. You know, whenever we can make an economic argument that this would actually save money, I think that can only help, uh, uh, help take this message forward and have people not feel despair about it. Preterm birth is the first thing I want to talk about. Uh, it affects now one in every eight babies born uh, in the United States. It's on the increase, and it's increasing even among mothers for whom preterm birth should be, uh, they should be at low risk for. So it's not just the fact that preterm birth is increasing because of, let's say, infertility treatment that yield, uh, gives more uh, multiple births. It's not just because the average age of mothers is now older than it was. So you can correct for all that in the data and kind of audit the data and just look at the, the women for whom you know, have singleton births who are not uh, over 40 like I was when I had my babies, uh, and uh, yet we see rising rates of preterm birth. So it's a, you know, official medical mystery as to why prematurity is increasing. It carries a $26 billion a year price tag. So that's uh, the amount of money spent in medical costs and social services uh, to help um, uh, babies born too soon. And of course, Preterm birth uh, over a lifetime is the most expensive thing that you can have happen to you um, because it's millions of dollars can be spent just getting you up to the day you should have been born, and then you're at high risk for uh, everything from asthma, allergy, autism, uh, learning disabilities, vision problems, and so forth. And so you're in for uh, medical intervention and uh, uh, special educational services uh, for life. Um, so uh, that it's not surprising then that Preterm birth is actually the leading cause of disability in the United States. Um, so what do we know about uh, the role that the environment plays in preterm birth? We actually know quite a lot. We know with certainty that uh, a group of chemicals called PCBs have the power to shorten human gestation. And we actually even know how they do it. PCBs um, have the power to cross the placenta uh, and enter the baby uh, and actually interfere with the thyroid hormones that uh, Bob described to you that help guide infant development, but they also do something else. They actually accumulate in the uterine muscle tissue itself of the mother um, and alter the way calcium flows through uterine muscle cells. And that is what causes cells to contract. You have to have calcium flowing to cause muscle contraction. So the trick at late pregnancy, when a uterus grows from the size of a plum to the size of a watermelon, uh, is to maintain what's called uterine quiescence, uh, even though all those muscle fibers are really stretched tautly. And usually when you stretch a, a muscle fiber, just like a rubber band, it wants to contract. Um, so a very careful balance of progesterone and estrogen in late pregnancy keeps the, uh, uh, those muscle fibers from contracting during the third trimester of pregnancy until the baby's ready to be born. Um, but uh, PCBs can override those signals and start the uterine muscles contracting before it should. 
Uh, we know that mothers who are exposed to PCBs have shorter gestations than, other, than mothers not exposed. We know that you can, when you, uh, in the laboratory, you can expose rats to PCBs and they'll go into labor sooner. We know that we can actually dissect out uterine muscle tissue, grow it in a petri dish, put some PCBs on it, watch this uterine muscles uh, contract. Um, so we, we, there's no doubt that PCBs have the power to shorten uh, a human pregnancy. Um, DDT uh, now also has very strong evidence uh, that old pesticide DDT, which is, looks a lot like PCBs, they're both chlorinated uh, hydrocarbons, uh, can have the same effect. Um, and so that's important because PC, uh, DDT is still being used as an anti-malarial agent in Africa um, on the, with the rationale that we need to protect children from malaria. But if m pregnant mothers are giving birth too soon, then we may be killing as many babies as we're saving. It's hard to know if that's true because in many of the nations uh, we're concerned about where DDT is deployed, uh, we measure the number of people who die of malaria, but we don't uh, have neonatal intensive care units. We don't have any metrics for the number of babies born prematurely. So we, we can't, uh, it's an unknown number compared to a num number of lives saved. We can estimate number of lives that we're killing. We don't know. But it's enough that the World Health Organization has now rethought um, its uh, kind of permission and blessing to use uh, DDT as uh, a, a weapon of uh, malarial control and is now asking that we uh, come up with alternative methods um, because of this uh, shortened, um, the power to shorten pregnancy. We know that certain plastics uh, have, uh, are linked to preterm birth um, and uh, phthalates are one of them. Uh, phthalates are used to soften as a plasticizer to soften PVC plastic. Um, and they are uh, linked to uterine inflammation. Um, we know that in some cases uh, how it works, um, although the data here are not as robust as what we know about PCBs. It's kind of emerging data. Uh, but the, the current data suggests that um, there are a set of cellular receptors, the perioxome receptors, um, whose job it is to kind of maintain uterine quiescence during late pregnancy. Uh, they're kind of, kind of shushing librarians of pregnancy. Uh, and uh, at some point, at the end of pregnancy, they are retired from service, which allows then the uterine muscle to start contracting. We don't exactly haven't uh, uncovered the mechanism by which they are quietly uh, retired. Um, but we do know that certain phthalates can actually have that effect on them too soon. So we're shushing the shushers, and pretty soon there's a riot in the library, and we commence uh, the dramatic events of, of labor and delivery. Air pollution, too, is linked to preterm birth. Um, we know that fine particles, uh, particularly from uh, coal-burning power plants, uh, can shorten human gestation, as can exposure to traffic exhaust. Um, so this, I think, has... Um, uh, very powerful implications for us um, because it means that any energy system that we choose that relies on fossil fuels is going to be linked to preterm birth, one of the most expensive medical problems that, that can happen to us. So it gives us um, further reason to move away from fossil fuels. So now I want to move into, uh, so that's the kind of first outcome. I want to move into uh, talking about respiration for a moment, which is related to preterm birth. Uh, respiration uh, is a really fun thing to study, I have to say, um, and, it's, it, and it has writerly aspects to it as well as um, really fun biology. Um, so consider, for example, the etymology of, uh, of the word inspiration. To inspire is to breathe in, but it also means to have a divine idea. 
Uh, it's also related to the word spirit, which uh, is Latin for the soul, but also is Latin for the idea of breathing. Um, and so in Latin, the idea of breathing and life and divinity are actually all share this common root, uh, inspire. Uh, and in Greek, the word is psyche, which me- refers to your soul, but also is a verb that means to breathe. So again, we see this close relationship uh, in ancient thought between life uh, and, uh, and breath. Uh, and in Hebrew, the word nefesh means life, and it also means that, that which breathes. So in, in Latin, in Greek, in, in uh, Hebrew, uh, we, we see this in kind of incredible connection, um, which I think we've forgotten about, right? And, and yet we, I think it's important to remind us that, um, that to take your first breath when you're born is the sort of beginning of this life as a, as a terrestrial mammal. It's the commencement of life outside your mother's body where you were a marine mammal, um, and all the oxygen you got came through your mother's placenta. So we, we consider the first breath of life the, uh, the beginning of uh, birth. And then, of course, your last act as a living person on this earth is to breathe your last breath. Uh, and we consider death to come when, when, when breathing stops. So uh, the lungs, then, uh, have this sort of interesting developmental story. Because they're not needed in pregnancy, they take a very leisurely approach to getting all their anatomical affairs in order. They're one of the very last organ systems in the body to develop before birth, and they actually do this kind of very procrastinating last-minute kind of thing. Um, At the very end of pregnancy, all of the uh, alveoli of the lungs, which is the actual gas exchange surface of the lungs, finally develop. And then at the very last second, during labor and delivery itself, uh, the surfactant that allows those uh, alveoli to be inflated is finally uh, secreted uh, by the, uh, by direction, under direction from the adrenal glands. So let me uh, back up just a second and kind of break all that down a little bit. Um, you imagine the lungs as kind of two vineyards separated by a heart. Um, The vineyard is a bunch of uh, tendril, viney-like structures, at the end of which are clusters of grapes. And those are the alveoli. That's where actually the oxygen goes into your blood and the carbon dioxide leaves inside those clusters of grapes. Each of us have about 300,000 alveoli. Uh, And if you spread them all out, it would take up about the size of this room. I think this room is about the size of a tennis court. Would you say that is about right? Um, it's It's the size of a tennis court. Uh, whereas our skin is uh, the size of a bedspread, of a full uh, double bed. So, uh, so, you know, we think of our skin as the largest organ, but actually the respiratory surface of our lungs is much, much larger. Um, those, those alveoli are vanishingly thin, um, about one micron in diameter. Um, human hair is 70 microns, so really thin. Um, and that allows for oxygen simply to flow right uh, through the membrane and into our blood. Uh, oxygen is not very soluble in water, so our blood ferries it around by uh, combining it with a hemoglobin molecule inside a red blood cell. So it has to be kind of shepherded through the blood inside red blood cells. Meanwhile, we generate oxygen as a waste product, um, and it is water-soluble, so it can just dissolve right from our blood plasma straight through the alveoli membranes, and all of us right now are exhaling uh, carbon dioxide. With every inhalation, every inspiration, we breathe in about a pint of atmosphere. So that's our most ecological act. It's all this atmosphere goes into our lungs um, and then comes back out again. Uh, so uh, when a mother is exposed to high levels of uh, 
uh, diesel exhaust and uh, traffic uh, exhaust, um, that will raise the risk for asthma in her children, even though the child has not even taken a single breath. So there are things that we can do uh, in prenatal life to alter the development of the lung to, uh, even before it starts working to make it more susceptible to uh, uh, inflammation and sort of a twitchier response system uh, after birth. Uh, probably that is a, an immune-mediated response of some kind that we don't quite understand yet. Um, once the uh, baby takes the first breath and, and all those alveoli uh, inflate, kind of like a sky full of parachutes, that's all made possible by this last-minute um, secretion of surfactant because, you know, uh, things that are wet like to stick together, like pages of a book left out in the rain. So to prevent that from the alveoli, those little skin, grape skins from collapsing on themselves during the exhale, you have this slippery fluid called surfactant. Um, and that is produced um, under a signal from the adrenal glands, these glucocorticoids, that are uh, also part of our stress response. So the actual stress of being born, the baby going down the birth canal and being squeezed, uh, stresses the baby out, and sometimes stress is a good thing. So the glucocorticoids actually cause the surfactant to be produced so that when the baby comes out and takes its first breath, all of those alveoli are able to, uh, they don't stick together, they inflate. So I think you can see why preterm babies are at such uh, uh, terrible risk then because they come into this world with fewer, fewer alveoli at the ready because they haven't all been formed yet, uh, and they don't have any surfactant to in inflate the ones that they do have. So, uh, so we spend a lot of time and money uh, injecting pregnant women with steroidal hormones that mimic glucocorticoids to speed up the maturation of the lungs. So when the baby is born too soon, uh, if a mother goes into labor too soon and we, we can't s arrest it, um, that the baby stands a fighting chance. And this is a good thing, um, but it comes with a price, which is that when you speed up the maturation of the alveoli, you prevent more from being formed. So those uh, premature babies will always have a fewer number of alveoli than if they had been born uh, full term. And that sets them up for a lifetime of problems, not only an increased risk of asthma, um, but when they reach adulthood, an increased risk of things like emphysema and uh, pulmonary obstructive disorder and things like that. They just have smaller lung surface area. They don't have a whole tennis court, essentially. Um, once children are born, if they live in air that's full of diesel exhaust, um, they are more likely to get asthma. Uh, the, busy, the more traffic al along the road, the more likely a child is to get asthma. Um, and even if they don't get asthma, they're likely to have smaller lungs. So even though most of the alveoli develop prenatally, a number of them still are formed after birth, um, and you're making new alveoli up to your adolescent age. So if you live in an area with a lot of air pollution, you actually end up as an adult with a smaller respiratory surface than somebody who breathes clean air. We know that that's enough to interfere with uh, athletic performance. So uh, teenage athletes who live in uh, places in L.A. that have dirty air uh, just don't have the same kind of tidal volume as uh, athletes living uh, in places with uh, cleaner air. So stunted lungs, in addition to asthma, is a possible outcome of air pollution. And, of course, air pollution also causes prematurity. So uh, there's a kind of a double whammy. You can be born too soon, and then you're a child continuing to breathe all that dirty air um, and it continues to uh, sabotage your lung development. Now I'm going to move on to the brain for a minute. Um, and this was another fascinating organ system for me to study. Um, it's some pretty complicated biology, so I spent about a year just kind of learning 
uh, basic uh, neuroendocrinology. The story has changed a lot since I was uh, last uh, studying it in neurology. So I had to kind of relearn it all. Um, brains, uh, like lungs, take a very long time to develop. Uh, we have the longest childhood of any mammal, and that's because the hallmark of being human is the ability to learn. We don't have a lot of instincts, so we have, to, we have this extended childhood where we can learn all these skills that we need for our survival and our culture. So brain development actually begins at about month five of pregnancy. That's when uh, all the neurons have already formed, but they have to get all wired together. So what, uh, I guess I should say the other hallmark about being human is not that we have so many more neurons than any other mammal. We actually, it's not so impressive for our body size and the number of brain cells we have, but rather we have so many million more connections between our brain cells than other species. Um, and that starts, those con that connectivity starts at about month five of pregnancy and goes up through year 25. So you're still, your frontal lobe is still getting dressed at, at about, about age uh, 25, which is why 25-year-olds, that's why they don't rent cars to people less than 25, because the, <laughs> the, it's the judgment part of your brain that actually gets uh, formed last. Um, so uh, there are 210 different developmental neurotoxicants that we've so far identified, suspected developmental neurotoxicants that are out there in the environment. Okay, that word means that it's toxic to the brain in a way that affects the development of the brain. So there are a lot of, you know, neuropoisons, but these are specifically affecting the way the brain gets wired together in childhood. Some of those are well known to you. Lead is one of them. So lead actually paralyzes those migrating fetal neurons or migrating neurons in childhood as they um, move around and get uh, uh, woven together. Uh, mercury is another uh, paralyzing um, uh, heavy metal that affects brain development, the result of which uh, raises the risk for uh, attention deficit disorder, um, gross motor skill delay, and uh, lowered IQ, as, as does lead. Uh, arsenic is another heavy metal that we now understand actually has the same effect as lead and mercury. Arsenic is well known as a poison and well known to cause cancer. There's never been any doubt about that for a lot of years now. Um, but more recently, we've discovered that like lead and mercury at l low levels, arsenic uh, basically causes kids to lose IQ points. Um, you heard about brominated flame retardants and their ability to interfere with thyroid hormone. Uh, and that's uh, thyroid is actually a kind of uh, wilderness guide for those migrating neurons. It helps them find the right uh, other cells to uh, link up with. Um, so in, in, with a lot of brominated flame retardants, a thyroid is actually flushed from the system, and it can't help the migrating neurons find their way. Um, and so uh, exposure to brominated flame retardants also is related to developmental delay and cognitive uh, deficit. Uh, and as are organophosphate pesticides. And there's an interesting set of studies from both coasts of our nation just released in the last few weeks, one in New York City, showing that children who live in Harlem where organic phosphate pesticides are used for cockroach control, um, when you measure the amount of pesticides in umbilical cord blood, you can actually predict developmental delays of those children as they go through their childhood. Uh, and out in California, in the lettuce fields, children of mothers exposed who are farm workers um, also show the same kind of patterns. Um, the higher the exposure of the mother to organophosphate pesticides in pregnancy, the more the developmental delay. We, th we think we understand something about the mechanism for why a pesticide might, like lead or mercury, be related to uh, loss of cognitive ability. Um, and in this case, it re revolves around an enzyme called PON1, P-O-N-1. 
And PON1 actually detoxifies organophosphate pesticides. So all of us have these uh, uh, enzymes. And so if you had dinner tonight and there was a little bit of pesticide residue in your dinner, your enzymes right now are working really hard to break it apart before it hits your brain. And probably for most of us, it's, it's, it's doing a good enough job that we are adequately protected. Um, however, when you're born, you actually don't have um, very high levels of PON1. Um, and in fact, they're really low. And that renders infants 65 to 130 times more vulnerable to pest, uh, organophosphate pesticides than, than us adults. So, so if you're pregnant and you're eating a little bit of uh, organophosphate pesticides in your diet, your brain may be fine, but your fetus doesn't have the enzymes to break those things apart and can cause devastating effects at levels of exposure that um, are very small. So in other words, it's not just the dose that makes the poison, that sort of old-fashioned idea from toxicology. What we now understand is the timing that makes the poison, that if you're exposed during times of life where you're missing an enzyme, that's a detoxifying enzyme, then a tiny, very small exposure might actually be more harmful than a bigger exposure uh, at some other time in, in your life. Um, actually, I, th I feel like I've done enough biology here. I've got, I, I can get really jazzed up and excited about the biology. I was going to talk to you about testicular dysgenesis syndrome. Uh, if you're interested, I, I'll, I'll do that during the Q&A. But I want to move, I guess, straight to the uh, what to do uh, part of the talk um, to say that, uh, um, that lots of things remain to be done. Um, and uh, getting us off of fossil fuels is going to be uh, kind of the big challenge, I think, of the next generation. Um, and it's, I, I think it, we all need to ask, what role can I play um, in the ongoing transformation that needs to occur? Because the problem is big enough. It's simple, but it's big. And none of us can take it all on. So part of um, not falling into despair, I think, is to, rack, to, to go through a process of individual um, uh, taking account of your own uh, talents and skills to ask, what, what kind of knowledge do I have? What are my skill set to bring to bear to this? So I often say um, to my audiences that, you know, look, we're all members of this great human orchestra. Uh, it is now time to play the Save the World Symphony. Um, but we, none of us have to play a solo. Nevertheless, you do have to know what instrument you hold and play it as well as you can uh, and know where, you, where, where we're at in the score. Um, so I have worked with a lot of different communities um, uh, on a lot of different parts of the problem, um, some of which you might not expect. For example, I've worked with fashion designers who are taking on the dry cleaning industry. Um, I've worked with middle school girls who are interested in uh, fighting for their right for non-toxic nail polish. I've worked with architects who are interested in designing carbon-neutral homes. I've worked with engineers who have actually redesigned washing machines in such a way that we don't need dry, clean, dry cleaning anymore, but we can clean them with uh, textiles with soap and water because we have uh, computerized control over things like humidity and agitation, making possible wet cleaning um, that's non-toxic. And so that is what allows the fashion industry to insist that dry cleaning move to these new uh, non-toxic um, methods of doing things. Um, I've worked with chefs who are interested in sourcing with organic farmers. I've worked with nursing homes who are interested in bringing locally grown foods into um, the nursing home as a way of combating, uh, as a way of helping uh, their patients who have memory loss because if they have foods that they're deeply familiar with from their childhood, it, it actually can help stave off Alzheimer's and 
food is very evocative of memory. Um, and uh, local farmers can play a role in that. Um, I've worked with football teams who uh, are interested in solving the problem of little brown mushrooms in playing fields, which I learned from linebackers, that are, they're not just a cosmetic problem because they're slippery and they create increased risk for knee injuries. So I've uh, helped one college uh, campus uh, bring mycologists together with athletic directors and quarterbacks to figure out how we could solve the problem of little brown mushrooms without resorting to uh, toxic fungicides. Um, so these are all just, um, you know, all parts of the, of the orchestra. Uh, and I've even worked with real musicians, classical musicians who play in real orchestras, um, and uh, helping them to understand that the wood in the uh, violins and violas uh, actually come from tropical trees who are endangered now because of climate change. And even if they're not wiped out, their growth rate is changing, and that changes the density of the wood and therefore the resonant property. So some of the musicality of their instruments themselves are being altered by the, our changing climate. So classical music itself has a link to ecology. Everything has a link to our ecological world. So whatever skill set that you bring to bear has a role in this. So it's not like you need to go out and become an expert in something else. So as I said to uh, a group of um, um, Maryland mass, uh, mass uh, Maryland Perg uh, canvassers, these young people who go out and talk, knock on doors cold and talk to people, I could not do that. I'm actually quite shy, and the idea of walking up to somebody and knocking on their door, I could. I mean, I would. I'd pass out. But. Uh, <laughs> I can stand here at a podium and I'm fine. Um, so uh, I, won't, I won't do that work. I won't do the work of actually organizing a community. Somebody else needs to do that. Um, but I feel like I have a sort of a skill set and ability to describe biology, hopefully in a way that makes uh, make sense to folks. Um, uh, even, you know, a bunch of uh, farmers with an eighth grade education in a church basement on a Friday night, if you want to talk about pesticides, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing uh, to do that. Um, so I hope that you will all uh, kind of go through this process of examination and ask um, what you might bring to this um, and find your own um, source of inspiration, uh, inspire to breathe, right? Uh, for me, it's my dad, who at age 18 had to go off and fight Hitler the day after he graduated from high school. So defeating global fascism was, that, was the order of the day. It was not a task that people could desist from. And my dad liked to, uh, and he was, you know, trained to, go up against German panzer tanks. So it was um, terrifying. And, but, you know, he, and he, I grew up with the, wor the words of Winston Churchill, you know, drilled into me. We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them on the fields. We shall fight them on the landing docks and in the hills. And we shall never surrender. Um, and so that is the, those were the words that brought uh, my dad through the war. And uh, growing up in a German-American family, um, he knew very well that there were members of... Uh, the, the German family who were in Germany, who were on the other side of it. Um, and uh, a lot of those people um, decided to ignore the signs of atrocity all around them. So the evidence for harm, they just disbelieved it. Um, and we have a name for those folks, right? Those are good Germans, and they're not judged very kindly. So when I think about uh, that history, I tell myself, I don't want to be a good German in the middle of the ecological holocaust. I want to be part of the French resistance. That's how I want to be judged by the people who come after us. And so, uh, so that's for me my own kind of personal um, source of realizing that um, big and terrible things can be addressed, that we don't just need to throw up our hands, um, that we can all kind of put our shoulder to the wheel. So with that, I'll close um, with a short reading from uh, Raising Elijah 
uh, and then we can kind of turn the mirror around here and I'll ask what's on your mind. Um, and uh, I will close with, um, this has nothing to do with toxicology. It's a, a scene of a birthday party. Um, birthday parties, birthdays are really significant for cancer patients, you might know. Um, and, of course, they're significant if you have young kids. So when my kids have a birthday party, uh, it's just kind of a really emotive thing for me, and I always end up weeping before the day is over. Um, and my kids think that's pretty funny. So I um, wrote this scene, uh, uh, which I think probably is, is a universal scene. I think you'll recognize this. Uh, it's like a little family movie. To the index of things felt acutely by parents, but imperceptible to everyone else, let's add birthday cakes, the sadness of. I'm referring to the moment that comes after the candles are blown out and someone stumbles over to the wall switch and flips the lights back on. After the song is sung, before the cake is cut. The moment when the waxy smoke balloons up from the red-tipped wicks into the sudden darkness and the mother of the birthday child realizes that they will never again be in this house a four-year-old boy or a seven-year-old girl or a six-year-old boy or an eight-year-old girl. Was it ever thus? Was the sadness of birthday cakes a secret known to my own parents and to their parents too? To be sad about birthday cakes is to lament the speed at which the earth circles the sun. It's a helpless, silly sort of sadness, and it doesn't last long, especially now that the lights are on again and before you is a laughing child, boy or girl, in possession of manners and psychomotor skills, who is doling out cake and ice cream to the neighbor kids and hamming it up for the camera. It's never the birthday kid, but the other one, the younger or older sibling who is trying to be a good sport about it all, who looks over and notices, Mama, why are you crying? And unbeknownst to him or her, that very sentence was also my unspoken wish, delivered just seconds earlier as the mighty exhale blew out the flames that number the years already gone by. It's the same wish for every cake. Oh, let them grow up. Let them find out. Let it go on. Thank you. Okay, comments and questions? Uh, hello. Do you use um, Eco Ball laundry pellets? I sent them to my family for Christmas, and so far I got a response from my dad. Not only does my mom, who's still recovering from her breast cancer treatment, feel better because the clothes don't, don't irritate her skin, but they really appreciate not having to spend 50 or $60 on either detergent, got oil in it, and uh, fabric softener, it's got oil in it, and dryer sheets, which have oil in it, and all their packaging, which probably has oil in it. <laughs> and I'm thinking well, it could be a small bit, not only to cut maybe a few hundred or even a couple thousand barrels a day on laundry, but all its implications for the environment. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've tried a lot of different things in my household, and um, you're correct to say that uh, detergent is a petrochemical. And, uh, uh, and in fact, it has a relationship to our uh, flooring tile and our uh, siding of our house and our wallpaper. So um, vinyl, uh, polyvinyl chloride, is brought to us because um, the, uh, a long time ago, 
um, the laundry industry had a disposal problem. It generated lots of chlorine to uh, create uh, caustic soda and things like that. And so uh, that chlorine was actually disposed of um, by pouring it into plastic. So PVC is 50% uh, chlorine by weight, and it's not necessarily a good building material because it wasn't designed to solve this problem. It wasn't necessarily designed to be the best engineering solution as a building material, as a material of construction or um, uh, home furnishing. And so to make it uh, so it wouldn't crack because it's inherently brittle, all these uh, phthalates that I talked about, which are related to preterm birth and are also um, are male reproductive toxicant, are, at, are added. So there are good reasons to seek out non-petroleum solutions to cleaning our clothes. So I actually don't write about that in Raising Elijah, but I do write about another uh, part of the laundry cycle in my own household, which was our, uh, my husband and my decision to uh, get rid of our clothes dryer, um, which uh, people think of as really radical, and it felt really radical at, at the moment. I mean, not radical in the big way, like this is going to save the world, but radical as a busy working mother, like what was I thinking, radical, right? And um, so, but it, I, the, I, there was a happy discovery that was made when we did that, which is that um, uh, by hanging our clothes and allowing plain old-fashioned evaporation to dry the clothes rather than drawing from the energy grid to do that, um, we reduced our, uh, uh, our monthly bill by a considerable amount because after your refrigerator, the clothes dryer is the next biggest uh, energy suck. Um, uh, and it turned out it didn't take any more time. So I actually do this sort of complicated time ergonomic uh, economic analysis that <laughs> you can read about. Um, because uh, uh, if you use clothes hangers instead of pegs and just hang the clothes, you actually sort as you go. Um, and, you know, when you pull clothes out of the dryer, you, yes, they dry faster, but you still have a 20-minute task in front of you, which is to sort all those clothes because a, a, a dryer is like a clothing randomizer. Um, and so there's all the sorting of the socks and all the things that are, is a sit-down job that everybody in my household hates hates so much that they sit around like these guinea pigs waiting for their litter to be changed or something. And then uh, people pour dirty laundry on top of the clean, and um, it wasn't working well anyway. So it turns out if you take that same 20 minutes and just hang everything, um, then, uh, then you're done. And so it, was, it, didn't, it turns out that having a clothes dryer actually doesn't save you time. Um, moreover, uh, we designed a system, my, I should say my husband did, based on what the Amish do, which is to string a retractable clothesline, kind of like uh, violin strings, going across our stairwell. I mean, I should say I live in Ithaca, New York, where the heating season is eight and nine months long. And so uh, the, for most of the year, the, the hot air from downstairs rises up through the stairwell, and so my drying clothes act as my humidifier. Um, so for my asthmatic son, I don't have to have a humidifier further saving me uh, energy and allowing me to keep the thermostat turned down lower. Um, and so it seems to me that if you're willing to break old habits, like try a, a ball, a pellet, instead of pouring in the laundry soap, that you can realize all kinds of happy uh, coincidences. So it's not, uh, the message isn't that we have to sort of do this sort of uh, irritating, inconvenient sacrifice in order to save the earth. In some cases, the green solution is just as easy and, and may offer other benefits. So I, got, I investigated this further, and it turns out that only 4% of Italians own clothes dryers. And Italians are pretty fashion-forward folks, so I figured they must, be, uh, they must have these, some kind of systems. And, of course, they do. And so in some cases in Europe, they're actually 
humidifying chambers actually designed into the architecture of the house so your clothes uh, purposely serve to humidify your home. And, so, and you know, so this is all, these drying chambers are actually part of the whole heating system of the house. Um, so, you know, we could probably, I mean, my system was just invented in 45 minutes. And uh, if you really brought the best minds uh, in, in uh, interior design and architecture to bear uh, on the issue, I think we could come up with something even more, more elegant. So good for you and good for your parents for doing something different. Hi, um, my name is Lisa, and uh, I two weeks ago I didn't even know who you were, and then very serendipitously found you uh, on YouTube speaking at a uh, fracking um, event in Albany, and uh, learned who you were. and And for me, you're you're exactly the person I'm looking for. I'm a much uh, lower level writer trying to do exactly what you're doing. And uh, I've been writing about fracking a lot, but recently um, <clears throat> just moved to uh, starting to learn and write about genetically modified um, food. And uh, Monsanto, who made PCBs and now makes the seeds, there's all these stories. I, you know, I've been reading your book uh, about arsenic and um, put, being put into wood and, and, and just the, the deception of corporations. So many people... Uh, are overwhelmed by the power of corporations and the protection of corporations by government and therefore just say, what can I do? Um, so I'm trying to help find my voice to help people see beyond that. But one of the things I'm wondering about is I hear you talk about redesigning material, you know, just having, totally having to redesign materials and so on is, are you engaging or what do you know about universities? Because, you know, universities that are funded by corporations are, are often doing the wrong work, but to me, they're such a, a critical source right now. I'm just wondering if you could just comment on what you might know, maybe in a hopeful way, about what's going on at the university level. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thank you for doing the, the kind of writing that you're doing. Um, you know, I do one kind of writing, but um, it doesn't work for all people. So we need all kinds of different voices going at this with all kinds of different narrative strategies. I don't write about genetically modified foods at all. So I, and, uh, I, I read about them, but it's, not, it's, just some, it's just not where I work. So I'm glad you are. I do write about fracking. Um, so universities are, can be incubators for ideas that we want to, to go out into the rest of the world. Um, and uh, and that's you know how, kind of how historically that's the role that they've played, uh, and so uh, my university uh, where I'm at right now at Ithaca College um, has uh, two platinum lead certified buildings, um, and we are trying to um, green the actual operational side of the campus so that when students are in the classroom learning and they look around. Um, the things that they see actually reinforce uh, what we're te the kind of green curriculum we're trying to teach in the classroom. So we use you know gray water to flush the toilets, and um, uh, uh, food scraps from the cafeteria are composted and taken out to the farm, and then we source with local farmers in our, our dining halls and things like that. So that uh, and the students uh, often have part of their work study programs, you know, is, are, are related to that. So. I think the greening of the college campus is one of the bright lights right now um, that's moving forward. And the result is a kind of denormalizing of the old ways of doing things so that when students go out, I think the biggest problem is that there's a shock that the rest of the world, to them, suddenly seems like it's still in the 19th century uh, because they get used to these kind of uh, 
uh, new ways of doing things on college campuses. Dartmouth has an interesting thing going on where their um, student engineers have designed um, uh, real-time um, meters, right? So that so that each dormitory, the energy use for each dormitory is being metered in real time, um, and that appears on the screens of everybody's computer when you turn it on. Um, so, uh, and they have contests between different dorms. Um, and when the energy use starts to go up, a little icon of uh, a polar bear drowning uh, <laughs> appears. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that has been uh, providing this real-time feedback loop that lets people know that for whatever reason, the energy use is now in increasing. Um, and so then students can do different things. Uh, to, to bring it back down. So they're working the bugs out of that system, so there's no reason why we couldn't have that in our own homes. Um, so, you know, every time you turned on an appliance, you would know, um, you know, because we know what the price of gas is all the time, but we do, how do we know the price of the energy that we're using to turn on the coffee grinder or to dry our clothes? I mean, we just have, these aren't, things aren't metered, right? So this, this is all being worked out on the college campuses, and hopefully this is kind of a good idea that could move into the rest of, uh, into the rest of the world. Let's see. The person with the microphone has to acknowledge who's going to talk next. Okay. Prep Library for bringing you. This has been great. And I want to ask you a question about uh, what's going on in Pennsylvania and the runoff and, and how, it's, how it's polluting the water Oh, here. I'm glad you asked. Um, well, first of all, I want to issue effusive praise to your Attorney General of Maryland, for suing Chesapeake Energy for what just happened 60 miles from my house. Thank you. I can't tell you uh, how encouraging, I mean, literally, like, it gave us courage, all of those of us who are fighting fracking in New York, when that announcement was made. So you live downstream from us, but you're upstream in your actions, right? And so that really emboldened us. So for those of you who feel like you've walk, kind of walked into the middle of the fracking movie, let me just kind of back up a minute. Um, fracking is a, a new form of extreme energy extraction. It's one of several. Um, and this one was uh, pioneered by Halliburton um, and rolled out in about 2004 here in the east. It was started a little bit earlier out in the west coast. And what it does is it, it shatters the shale bedrock under our feet to get out the bubbles of, of methane. Methane is... Natural gas. Natural gas is just a euphemism that was invented by the industry to sound clean and green. It's methane, what we're talking about. Um, and um, and, and it, before that, those bubbles of methane were basically uh, unprofitable to extract. Um, and it's made uh, so where we are in history with natural gas is that uh, before fracking uh, came along, our natural gas supplies were in decline. Um, and that's because we relied on bubbles of natural gas, big, large bubbles, that you kind of stick a straw in the ground and it would come straight up. We've kind of got run through all that. So what, we have, what we're left with are, is our own bedrock, uh, inside of which are bubbles of natural gas. And that's because the bedrock over which we walk, from here in Maryland up uh, all the way north to where I live in upstate New York, represents an ancient seabed, and not just any ancient seabed, because there's lots of seabeds, but one that existed so long ago that there wasn't very much oxygen in the atmosphere. This is talking 400 million years ago. Nobody had spinal cords then on Earth, and, the, and there weren't enough plants to make oxygen. So therefore, when all the creatures that lived in that ocean died, their body couldn't de decompose. They turned into bubbles of methane instead. So in that particular layer called the Marcellus, 
Um, uh, there's, it's full of these gas bubbles. And, and then there are other layers of shale on top of that. But by then, it w the Earth was more oxygenated, so you don't necessarily see all the shale. So, uh, so this form of uh, fracking involves going all the way down a mile down with a, a drill and, uh, and then turning sideways and going horizontally through the shale formation, blowing it up with explosives, and then under high pressure, taking nine, four to nine million gallons of water, the tens and thousands of gallons of, of uh, chemicals in it, um, to force open all the cracks that you created. That allows the gas bubbles to escape and go up the borehole. Now, the reason you need all the chemicals um, is because there's too much friction to force that amount of water, and you're talking about 10,000 pounds a square inch of pressure. That's like a baseball bat against a windshield. Uh, you couldn't do that without slickening the water to decrease the friction. Um, moreover, you have to carry sand grains in to hold the um, cracks open, and to get the sand grains around the bend, you have to have something thick to hold them. Otherwise, they'll just settle out. And then... Um, to, get the, to make the gas out, you have to pour another chemical in to break all that thick stuff down to make it thin. Um, and in addition, there's also living organisms down at that depth. It's called deep life. It's kind of an interesting thing. They feed on the hydrocarbons, and they slime up the pipes. So you need powerful biocides, pesticides, to kill all the stuff that's alive. So all that stuff is pumped down under, into the shattered bedrock. Of course, all of our drinking water aquifers lie on top. Um, and, uh, and then up flows the gas, but also half of, the, of that chemicalized water also comes back up with the gas. Um, and half of it remains uh, hopefully permanently entombed inside the geological strata. Um, so first of all, there's the problem of making all this fresh water disappear. It exits the water cycle because there's not supposed to be any water that far down on the ground. So that water will never again, you know, cycle as it has always done from time immemorial, turning from raindrops into uh, fresh water and then going through the soil into groundwater and then eventually coming back up through a spring and rising into clouds. So that whole water cycle, the kind of that wheel that just turns and turns, this is the only time in human history that humans have ever made water disappear to, uh, from the cycle in a large amount. So you're taking all this water and entombing it in deep geological strata. Um, and of course you don't want it to come back because it's highly lethal now. But uh, half of it does come back up with the gas and then it requires disposal. So unfortunately, and from my point of view, in the state of Pennsylvania, they just allow it to be dumped into uh, uh, surface water and through sewage treatment plants, even though sewage treatment can't treat the chemicals that are in it. So they just kind of rely on dilution to, do, to deal with it. Ha, ha, just, Pennsylvania did stop that practice just recently, in the last few weeks. What also comes up is all the radioactivity um, that's down there. So there, you know, uh, East of us, well, maybe not in Maryland, but a little bit further north, there used to be an ancient mountain range that entirely eroded into this ancient sea. And that mountain range contained things like uranium and uh, lead and mercury and arsenic, a lot of elements. And so those also uh, found their way to the bottom of the ocean and are all bound up in that layer of shale with the methane bubbles, uh, along with brine, all the old ancient seawater. So that also comes back up. So there's a lot of radioactivity, a lot of brine and so forth that are released. So it's a mass of millions and millions of gallons of, uh, of, of, of flowback fluid that has to be disposed of. And there is no technology known to turn that poisonous flowback fluid into potable water again. So it's a huge waste disposal problem. Um, also, just pumping all that uh, water under that pressure with explosives and th something uh, that's pr pr as prone to detonation as methane um, creates uh, acute hazards. And so in Pennsylvania, in northern Pennsylvania, 
60 miles south from me. There's a blowout of a well uh, while it was being fracked. All this poisonous frack water uh, was uncontrolled and uh, spewing out everywhere, including into one of the tributaries of the Susquehanna. The Susquehanna flows from Pennsylvania up through New York for a while, then back into Pennsylvania, and forms 45% of the freshwater of the Chesapeake. So that's why you're downstream from what happened in Pennsylvania. And, and on those grounds, your AG sued, uh, sued them for bringing uh, poisons to you all the way from uh, Pennsylvania. So uh, I feel passionately about that, and because of that, I'm afraid I didn't answer your question. Do you want to refocus what? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, all right, all right. Sandra, since you grew up in an agricultural community and you've also talked and worked with farmers, there's a, a, a legislative challenge that we deal with here in Maryland trying to pass any bills that have the word pesticide in it, and that is called the Farm Bureau. And so we've worked very actively to pass some very critical bills, despite great support from federal agencies and physicians and all kinds of um, experts. Inevitably, the Farm Bureau is very powerful and undermines those efforts. And I was wondering whether you have any thoughts about how we can really engage more of the agricultural community that can, can in a sense, stand up to the Farm Bureau that supposedly represents their interest, but really doesn't, because the farmers are more at risk many, for many illnesses, as you know, than the rest of us are. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Well, yeah, I mean, never give up is, is basically it. I mean, you just have to keep submitting bill after bill after bill sometime. And, uh, and there are other states in which, you know, it took many attempts, and you kind of, uh, through the process of uh, providing testimony, uh, you win one vote at a time, um, and uh, old-fashioned perseverance, I think, is part of it. Uh, that being said, I, I understand it can be incredibly frustrating, and I've testified in my own state house in Illinois, um, and you know it was just kind of exercise in, in, in futility. Um, I do. I want to say that in chipping away at it um, is helpful, right? And so, um, getting cosmetic pesticides out of backyards is often a first step to help raise awareness about the health effects of pesticides. And we have very good data now to show that uh, childhood brain tumors are linked especially to mother's prenatal exposure in the home and garden of pesticides. Um, and so leading with that um, and not dealing with the farming right now, except that we all should be supporting organic farmers and spending our food dollars toward organic farmers, that can help raise awareness and then you can go after farming later. So you kind of have to be strategic and, and stage it, I think. Because they, they correctly see it as a slippery slope, probably. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in New, in New York, we just, uh, as of, I think today is the first day, we have a new law saying no pesticides can be used on school grounds. And we fought, I don't know, 10 years for that, and we did finally get it. Um, when I was in uh, Binghamton, New York, a few nights ago, I was being trailed by um, a Canadian uh, fil uh, television station crew. And uh, um, so they spent a couple days with me, and the director is a, a runner like I am. So she was telling me about the run that she had gone on that morning through Ithaca. Um, and she said she was shocked to smell all the pesticides, because in Canada, there is no cosmetic use of pesticides anymore. Right? In most of the municipalities, it's been banned. 
Um, and so enough years had gone by that she had forgotten what that smell is like um, in, in spring. And it was a reminder to me that uh, how quickly we adjust to a new normal. You know, it seems utterly abnormal to her that you, every spring you would smell the smell. I mean, it was crazy to her. Um, but she, she can remember, you know, just from a few years ago, and that was also normal for, for her as well. So my son, who's now nine, the real-life Elijah, when he was about four, was the year that we outlawed cigarette smoking in public places in New York. So he, he actually didn't, and I didn't really realize this until after the ban, had never seen anybody smoking. Because after the ban, everybody had to go out in the streets, and so now kids could see people smoking, whereas before they were all inside the bars in the, you know, some other place. Um, and so uh, the first time he saw somebody smoke, he looked out the window of our little village Main Street Cafe and saw a guy in, a, uh, in an alleyway trying to light a cigarette in a snowstorm. You know how there's that kind of hunched-over posture? He said, Mama, there's a man out there in the snow trying to light his face on fire. <laughs> and I realized, well, what a difference between my childhood when, you know, every adult kind of smoked and I had all, you know, I could see smoking cigarettes on television and still have the jingles in my head. You know, my four-year-old life and his four-year-old life, this incredible sort of denormalizing of tobacco has taken place. And so I had explained smoking to him, and it didn't sound glamorous at all. I mean, it sounded so grotesque and weird. Like, why would you want to do that? And uh, so I think that, again, gives me sort of courage to imagine that we may get to the point where spraying pesticides on our food and, uh, seems as bizarre as lighting up a cigarette in church, which I can actually remember pe- people doing in the back. There was like a smoking section in the back of church, you know? And, uh, and, and I think our, our children and grandchildren would think about, think about pesticides perhaps in the same way. So, so, but there may be people better than I who are, are good at strategizing. You know, I don't always necessarily know how to do that kind of slow march to get from point A to point B, but I do know that other states have done it, um, and they've often disaggregated it, so they've gone after cosmetic use first before they've taken on uh, other, other parts of it. Um, I've noticed lately a lot of uh, women having cesarean births. And I was wondering if you have any insight on that. Um, Well, I just came, actually, I spoke yesterday at a perinatal birth conference in Boston, so I just did get to hear a little bit about that. And my understanding is, yes, the rate is going up, um, and uh, it's not necessarily going up for legitimate medical reasons, so it's considered a a problem. Um, uh, Cesarean birth, of course, prohibits... um, the baby from exiting through the birth canal, which lowers the surfactant. So those babies do have more respiratory distress than babies born vaginally. Um, and often, um, because of, probably because of anesthesias and other stressors, um, have more trouble uh, breastfeeding, um, which is probably the, uh, one of the best things you can do um, in terms of um, environmental health. Uh, because there are things in breast milk that actually protect infants from damage, from postnatal exposure. Uh, it's kind of, um, uh, it, it kind of he- heals things. So in other words, uh, we can measure um, uh, prenatal exposure in umbilical cord blood and know what babies are exposed to. And then some will be formula fed and some will be breastfed. And even though the breastfed babies have uh, more higher body burden of these chemicals because of the high level of toxics in breast milk, um, they have 
better outcomes. They, they, have, they hit developmental milestones sooner. They have better immune systems. So even though these things are immunotoxicant and um, they might be co- uh, neurotoxicant, um, they still breastfed babies just, uh, they, breastfed helps babies compensate from the exposures. Um, so anything that sabotages a baby's ability to uh, breastfeed is, uh, is problematic. Um, and so working to lower cesarean rates um, by normalizing natural birth would, would be definitely something I'd be in favor of. Thank you. I don't know if the book addresses this or if you have plans to write um, more about this subject, but um, I know that um, Breast Cancer Fund commissioned you to write uh, an article about what's known about precocious puberty um, in girls, and I actually brought your article to um, my pediatrician. I'm, uh, I've had breast cancer, estrogen positive, and my daughter, um, at the end of my treatment, I noticed that my thir- th- uh, third grade daughter was developing breast buds, so um, I, I wished that I didn't know quite so much about xenoestrogens. Um, but I, I find in discussing this with people, um, parents, um, there's just very little information. Um, people are troubled by it. They don't, um, you know, they wonder if it's just normal now. And um, I, I just wonder if you have plans to sort of um, make that information, um, you know, more available. Chapter 9. Okay. <laughs> Thank um, you. So, uh, <laughs> Indeed, um, the Breast Cancer Fund commissioned me to write this white paper on the falling age of puberty in U.S. girls in 2007. Um, and they I, correctly realized that um, the data are very clear that the younger you are at, um, in, at puberty, the higher your risk for breast cancer as an adult. And if the age of puberty is falling, um, that's a trend in the wrong direction. And if we could have a, identify the contributors to that trend and reverse them and push the age of puberty back up, we would actually save lives by preventing breast cancers. Um, So with that as a kind of rationale, I spent um, a year or so uh, in the field of neuroendocrinology, first understanding the actual mechanism by which uh, puberty and sexual maturation, um, how how it actually happens. It starts in the hypothalamus. Um, So I wanted to understand all that. And then taking a look at the time trends to convince myself, you know, is this really real or not? Uh, is, is the age of puberty really falling? And if it is, then what, what's driving it? So, uh, so you can download the report for free. It's a free download. So if you just uh, Google, like, falling age of puberty in Steingraber, you'll find it. And, and then I uh, um, rewrote it. Um, I tried to bring some pretty plain English to neuroendocrinology, but it was mainly written for uh, the medical community. That was my primary audience. So I rewrote it um, f- uh, in Chapter 9 in the book, so it's, in, in, it's explained in a little bit more lay language. Um, so essentially, uh, here it is in a nutshell. Um, yes, the age of puberty is falling, but it's not the age at which girls are getting their first menstrual period. That hasn't changed very much over the last 30 or years or so. The real story is the age at which girls are developing their breasts. Um, and uh, that's called thalarchy. And uh, when, I was, um, when I was a kid, I was 11 and a half when I first developed breast buds, and that was 1970. So I took a look at the 1970 data, and it turned out I was exactly average. So the median age in 1970 for onset of breast budding was 11 and a half. Today it has fallen to below age 10 for white girls and below age 9 for black girls. So the, a racial disparity has opened up, and the whole... And for both black and white girls, the age has dramatically fallen. So essentially, um, 
girls are reaching puberty a year and a half earlier on average than they did three decades ago. So the way puberty works is uh, breast buds usually form first about two years later, first menstrual cycle, and about 10 years after that, uh, 10 years, about 10 months after that, first ovulation, and that would represent the attainment of fertility, and that would be the kind of commencement of the end of puberty and, uh, and fertility. So, uh, so by backing up the starting point of puberty, we're actually unrolling it over a much longer period of time than in the past. So girls are spending more time in puberty than before. And of course, this raises their risk for breast cancer, we think. Um, but also, um, I became interested in some other effects that we don't really think about, which is that puberty actually entirely resculpts the brain. So you get uh, a different balance of white and gray matter. You get different neurotransmitters forming, which is why the very dramatic events of puberty, you know, they al it alters a lot. Um, of the way you think. Uh, and what you gain is the ability to do higher order thought. So there's no point in teaching calculus to an eight-year-old. You have to actually have a pubertal brain to understand calculus, to do logic, to do philosophy, and so forth. So on the other hand, what, what you lose uh, is what's called cognitive plasticity, um, which is actually um, much higher uh, in an, a juvenile brain with, without pubertal hormones involved. So the ability to learn a foreign language, the ability to learn a musical instrument, the ability to, uh, um, to do athletic performance, to really learn a, a sport and master it, you have to start as a child before puberty. Um, so I began to wonder, well, um, so suddenly we're, we're still teaching foreign language at you know, middle school and beyond, but girls are getting puberty sooner. So how is that working? Are we actually interfering with girls' ability to learn by by uh, changing their environment in ways that's pushing them in, into puberty sooner. Um, you know, girls have, have, have a year and a half less of childhood than they used to 30 years ago. It seems huge to me, as the mother of a 12-year-old myself. So, so then what's causing it? Well, here's where it, it truly gets really murky, because it turns out that puberty, ma sexual maturation in all mammals is a plastic trait. Because for female mammals to reproduce, it's a tremendous cost. You have to grow a whole new body inside of your body, calcify the skeleton of that new body, and then give birth, and then uh, breastfeed, which is 500 calories a day. So you don't, you don't want to do that until a lot of things are in place. You have the right environment. You have uh, enough body fat on board. You're healthy enough. You don't have an ongoing infection and so forth. And so the hypothalamus, which is the, government, uh, the sort of governor of puberty, responds to all kinds of environmental signals in all mammals to decide when the time is right for sexual maturation. So in the deer family, for example, if food is really plentiful, you can have one-year-old fawns go into puberty and be sexually receptive. But if in, in places where uh, food is really uh, scarce, they'll be two years old or more before, they're able, before they go through puberty. Um, and so the, the obesity epidemic among children is almost certainly playing a role. Um, we know that fat itself produces a chemical called leptin, and leptin is a permissive agent. It, it's like the alarm clock to the hypothalamus telling it to kind of wake up and begin secreting gonadotrophin-active uh, hormones. Um, on the other hand, there are chemicals that, um, naturally occurring chemicals that inhibit and, and maintain dormancy. So it's when the balance of permissive signals and inhibitory signals switches to the permissive that puberty commences. Um, so it's not, the answer to the cause of early puberty isn't just going to be one thing. It's going to be multi-causal. So the, what I did discover is that even if you, after you correct for increasing body mass index of girls, leaner girls are also going through puberty sooner than they used to. And even though black girls go through puberty earlier now than white girls, 
at the beginning of the 20th century, black girls actually went into puberty later than white girls. So the age of puberty among black girls has fallen further and faster than among white girls. So, you know, and when you look at the African data, girls in Africa from well-off families who eat very well and have high body mass index actually go through puberty much later than African-American girls. So, you know, it's not, it's not that simple. So, uh, so I came to the conclusion, as did a special expert panel uh, convened by the EPA that I had nothing to do with, uh, that the environmental exposures to hormone-disrupting chemicals were uh, probably playing a role in the story of er early puberty. Um, and we don't have evidence for all of them. We do know that there are chemicals in the laboratory that speed up the maturation of the breast in lab animals. And we know we can find some of these chemicals in the urine of four to six-year-old girls. So we know they have exposure. Um, what really needs to be done uh, is finally being done a big prospective study that measures umbilical cord blood of some of the chemicals that we suspect uh, hasten puberty, um, and then trace those girls to see if those who had the most early life exposure go into puberty sooner. We'll get those results in about 15 years. In the meantime, all of us who have daughters have to do the best we can with the, uh, with the evidence that we have. So my thinking is any chemical that is inherently toxic, that speeds up uh, sexual maturation in mammals, has no place in our economy. That's all I need to know. As the mother of a daughter, it's my job to protect my children from harm. I don't need absolute proof that my kids are going to get electrocuted when they're swimming in a lake and I hear the sound of distant thunder. I just need to know this is an inherently dangerous situation and I'm going to keep my kids out of harm's way. That's what parents do. And that's the kind of perspective that we need to bring to our chemical regulatory apparatus and ask them to embrace precaution, not asking for, you know, piles of dead bodies of dead children before we do something different.